Hello, I'm Fran Kelly, and today on ABC Radio National, the third of our 2009 Boyer Lectures called A Very Australian Conversation with General Peter Cosgrove. Peter Cosgrove became a national figure as commander of the Interfet Force in East Timor. After Timor, he was promoted to Chief of Army and promoted again then to General and then Chief of the Defence Force. He retired from the military in 2005, but he hasn't retired from public life. And this year, he is our 50th Boyer Lecturer. Last week, General Cosgrove spoke on Australia's regional relationships. Today, his lecture is titled, Leading in Australia. I think we can agree that given his background, leading is something he has plenty of experience in. Last month, the CEO of Lloyd's International said he believed that leadership played a substantial part in the global financial crisis, that it was attributable to a confirming culture of leadership and lack of innovation and questioning that led to a knock-on effect of bad leadership. So what then is good leadership? What are the qualities required to lead well? And does it make any difference if that's in the business world or in the military? With the third in his Very Australian Conversation Boyer Lecture Series for 2009, here's General Peter Cosgrove and Leading in Australia. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. In this, the third of the Boyer Series of Lectures for 2009, I take up a subject which has been almost a lifelong fascination for me. Leadership. And especially today, my observations on how it is practised in Australia, its quality and effectiveness and to try to illustrate any particular or peculiar Australian nuances to the skill of leading. Of course, most of my experience has been in leading in the military. Initially, small groups of men of 30 or less in combat in Vietnam, then progressing through to ever larger groups of men and women, until in the end I had command of the entire Australian Defence Force, about 70,000 Navy, Army and Air Force personnel, both regulars and reserves. Since I retired, I have commanded nothing, led nothing, and found that even the dog is insubordinate and disobedient. But I have remained, and I think I always shall, a keen observer of leadership as I have seen it in the wider community. I hurry to add that I haven't been looking at it through some kind of military prism, some kind of hop-to-it measure of effectiveness. No, I have been looking instead as to whether it achieves the effect desired by the leader and if it is to the comfort or acquiescence of those who might be led. Overall, I think it is fair to say that while the sort of leadership on offer in Australia is pretty good, it can be patchy, that is, spasmodic in practice. Sometimes, leaders stop leading and sort of go on a leadership holiday and sometimes their leadership descends in quality, so that the team wish they would go on a holiday. Only a few minutes ago, I piously stated that I would not examine the leadership I observed at every hand in Australia through my military telescope. Of course, that can't strictly be true. Otherwise, that over 40 years of military service would be null and void but it is my total conviction that all of the trappings of good leadership are generic and widely applicable 
whether you are standing in a khaki queue with your mess tins or on an automobile production line. What I pledge not to do is to apply identical standards or to confuse the purpose of the leadership in the different environments. Let's start, therefore, with a universal truth. Leaders fundamentally are accountable. Whether it is the dad who, by example, becomes a leader of other dads at the soccer game when he starts to put out the witch's hats and the gold nets on a shivering cold morning, he is a volunteer who has assumed responsibility. Continuing the family analogy, those mums who rally to the tuck shop assuming a leadership-by-example position, they've made themselves accountable. Much more often, this leadership accountability is clearer. In the never-ending marathon of being a decent leader, this is the first hurdle. A hurdle many would-be leaders never cross. I have been beaten across the years so often with this principle often in my early days as a young infantry officer. Sometimes the reminders were even quite humorous. In my very early days as a young lieutenant, before I had been allocated a permanent group to command, while in a hiatus period at Holsworthy Barracks near Sydney, I was given the sort of odd job that frequently comes the way of budding Napoleons. Apparently, the long grass and encroaching shrubbery in the area of the battalion obstacle course was offending the commanding officer's eye. This obstacle course was across a narrow but swiftly running creek flanking the built-up area. I went to the quartermaster and drew out on signature a whole bunch of appropriate tools, shovels, fire rakes, shears and the like. I then encountered the group of desperados who had been allocated to me and who had been winkled out from where they had been skulking in the battalion area. Ordinary soldiers who, like me, had yet to be allocated a more permanent position. I marshalled this miniature horde, and off we went. We soon got to the creek. The obstacle course was just the other side of it. In fact, the creek featured at some points of the course. The creek was only seven or eight metres wide. Apparently the nearest bridge, so a better informed soldier told me, was about half a kilometre away. No problem, I declare. We shall simply wade the creek. Seven or eight metres wide, but over waist deep. The soldiers were unimpressed. They were soaking. They were seething. They were silent. For some hours they worked on in dogged silence until eventually a pristine obstacle course was available to gladden the commanding officer's eye. We returned via the creek crossing. Why not? We were still pretty damp. The cranky diggers marched up to the battalion stores compound and dumped their tools before being let go by little Napoleon. Only then, when they had gone, did I tally up the tools to find, sadly, I was deficient a number, with no diggers standing around to ask about them. The quartermaster, a grizzled older officer, laughed softly as I explained my youthful errors, and then firmly but kindly docked my pay for the tools which had vanished. Accountability emphasised 
at an early age. At the other end of the spectrum in both gravity and time, in 2005, I stood at Sydney Airport among the bereaved relatives and friends of the nine magnificent young men and women of the Navy and Air Force killed in the Sea King disaster. You will recall the aircraft crashed on landing on Nias Island in the earthquake relief operation, which followed hard on the heels of the major effort we conducted after the Asian tsunami. To stand there offering condolences to these devastated people was to feel accountable, for it was I who had sent their deceased loved ones on the task during which they were killed. Leaders who fail to appreciate this fundamental precept of accountability must also fail to muster the profound commitment true leadership demands. You don't bundy on and off as a leader. Most Australians intuitively understand this and leaders who see themselves of only limited liability soon understand the limited loyalty this attracts from the team, the firm, the electorate. Leaders in Australia who talk the talk but who fail to walk the walk are derided. Tall poppies are sometimes cut down with vicious glee, but generally they will have brought some criticism upon themselves by their actions or neglect. This tall poppy observation pertains throughout my further remarks today. It's instructive to consider the more spectacular and well-known falls from grace of leaders in the public eye. I hasten to add there will be no names used. In the main, the issues behind these falls could be grouped under a lack of competence, a lack of support or loyalty from those they sought to lead, and a lack or failure of integrity. Of all of these, the last is the most egregious, the most fatal. We so much want our leaders to be unfailingly decent, an obvious or perceived flaw in integrity can be the toxin which kills them off. We all of us have a reputation, something we are known for, sometimes different from what we would like to be known for. At the core of this is the simple but fragile heart, our integrity. Always under challenge, under tests both trivial and profound every day of our lives. In business, integrity is just as important as in any of the great public offices. It is interesting to observe that many of the modern corporate failures in leadership have come either from a failure in integrity by the leaders in question, or equally serious, a failure to diligently protect the integrity of the business, which the owners rely on. You might say that this was more a case of incompetence, but I believe one of the first and fundamental obligations of competent business leadership is above all to protect the reputation and the integrity of the business. To that degree, the integrity of the business is the integrity of the leader. Over the last couple of decades, the business community has seen an exponential increase in compliance-based regulations. 
These regulations have grown from a whole raft of incidents where corporations and their leaders have behaved poorly, leading to great losses among shareholders. While many of these regulations seem to business to be burdensome and frustrating, their imposition is certainly a logical outcome of some outlandish corporate behaviour in the past. In some ways, this framework of regulation can lead to a culture of integrity by compliance, whereby corporate leaders, boards and chief executives can increasingly feel that if they abide by the letter of the law or regulation, then they have behaved with integrity. The subtle shortcoming is that no system can ever describe the limits of obligation which must be self-imposed on the behaviour of men and women of integrity. And of course, a business culture which assumes that within the regulatory envelope anything else goes is obviously flawed. Most groups of people form into teams in order to strive for goals which are beyond the reach of an individual. The operative word of the previous sentence was strive. The nature then of teamwork is adversarial, against another team, against the environment, against standards, even against the team's previous performance. A key to successful leadership is to simply and clearly identify the adversary to the team. The timeless operations of teams in the military and in business revolve around a highly complex system of adversarial relationships. In the military, the first adversary to be overcome is oneself, to be fitter, quicker, more alert and determined and ferocious for longer than you thought possible, before the Navy, the Army or the Air Force got hold of you. After that and in training, your adversaries start to multiply. The rigour of the various training standards, other teams against whom you strive to be superior, even sometimes your instructors, who can be seen as harsh and seemingly uncaring, and thus, in a perverse way, as adversaries to help your team bind more closely. At the core of it all is your team, and at the core of your team is yourself, and your determination not to let the team down. Moving on from there to the operational employment of the military, your own imagination at home today is a pretty good guide to the range of adversaries available there. Let me finish this part of my remarks on a note which will reflect in my comments on business. Of course, in the military, the adversaries, or predators if you like, are pretty obvious and well understood. They are almost invariably external to the military tribe. Military leaders will move heaven and earth to avoid internal conflict in any teams they lead. Even when motivating their teams by telling them how superior, admirable and even unique they are in relation to the rest of mankind, these military leaders will be careful not to alienate the huge array of necessary, actual and potential supporters. It would simply be madness to do otherwise. 
Well, business is certainly much more complicated. The range of adversaries is almost endless. In business, for quite obvious reasons, you could define an adversary as someone who stands between you and your business goal. They might be friendly or well-meaning adversaries, such as the regulator or the government, or they might be bona fide adversaries such as competitors. Equally, within the tremendously dynamic arena, which is the industrial relations field in Australia, sometimes management might feel themselves to be in an adversarial relationship with parts of their workforce. In a purist sense, this might be regrettable, but it is also natural and sometimes inevitable. We have been able to avoid much of this in the military by pointing over our shoulders at the government of the day and to precedent, and even by pointing to public expectations on so-called industrial issues within the Defence Force. There is no such luxury or leisure or opportunity in much of Australian business. All of this reality is anathema to the prized military principle of all of one company the ethos of shared risks, shared goals, shared grief and shared glory. Generally speaking, corporate life is too dynamic, too contemporary, too event-focused to foster the sort of profound ethos which is pivotal to team and tribal behaviour in the Australian Defence Force. Sure, there are wonderful examples of corporate ethos to point to as exceptions to the rule. A company I work for and have great pride in, Qantas, has a wonderful and iconic reputation in Australia and a tremendous internal ethos and self-regard. Yet Qantas as a business is subject to the same centrifugal forces, both commercial and industrial, as any other business. The CEO of Qantas can't run around simply appealing to the old school tie while he keeps the business viable and vibrant for the owners. Yet over a very long professional career, I have seen so much of the value, the inestimable value of ethos, that I have to come back to it as one of the greatest adjuncts to successful leadership. Modern leadership theory and management guruism is replete with jargon about the self-actualization and empowerment of the individual within a team environment, the leader as a nurturer and earth mother figure. If this stuff resonates, then it is useful, but I'll bet I can cram every one of these shibboleths into the bucket I would label ethos. A couple of months ago, I was privileged to attend a ceremony at Government House in Canberra when Trooper Mark Donaldson of the Special Air Service Regiment was awarded the Victoria Cross. Many of you will remember that in 2008, Mark was involved in a desperate battle when he and his comrades were ambushed by a strong Taliban element in Afghanistan. Over a protracted battle, a large number of Mark's colleagues were wounded. The enemy occupied high ground overlooking the trapped Australians, and things were very grim. Mark had been very prominent during the battle, and his actions allowed many of his wounded comrades to be moved to some kind of shelter and given first aid. 
Eventually, the small force of which he was a member was withdrawing from that deadly location. Even as the vehicles containing the Australians were withdrawing, an Afghan interpreter with Mark's group was hit and, unnoticed by everybody, tumbled wounded out of his vehicle and lay fully exposed to the ferocious fire of the ambush. When the vehicles had proceeded a little further, Mark happened to look back and saw the Afghan man lying huddled and helpless about 80 metres away. He immediately leapt from his vehicle and raced back into the fire-swept area. He picked the wounded man up and, despite the heavy fire, carried him to safety. Like you, when I heard of his deeds, I was thrilled and astounded. What Mark did was incredibly brave. I also saw it as, to a large degree, part of that great tradition and ethos of the Australian Army. It is unthinkable to let the team down, not to help some member of the team in trouble. Ethos, of course, is easier to achieve when your organisation starts with a reputation, with high public regard, with scale, with contemporary relevance. BHP Billiton, Woolworths, the Australian Public Service, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the various arms of the military, all of these great institutions have the qualities I just enumerated. I must say, though, if somebody waved the magic wand and made me 20 or 30 years younger and plonked me in charge of an organisation, I would work ceaselessly on those technical commercial and competitive excellence measures that you would hope to introduce to the business. But I would work ceaselessly also on that self-regard and pride in the business and the team as the glue to propel us beyond any sense of it's just a job, it pays my salary. After Cyclone Larry, I unexpectedly found myself co-opted by the Queensland Government to lead the Operation Recovery Task Force in far north Queensland. As I've said on many other occasions, while the cyclone was a huge natural disaster wreaking havoc on the economy of the far north, it was in essence a human tragedy. By that I mean it was its effect on people and their lives and confidence and expectations that was the fundamental challenge. If the cyclone had come ashore somewhere in Australia that was uninhabited, a camera team would have flown over the area and produced for us some footage of flooding and blown over vegetation, and 24 hours later we would have been struggling to remember the details. Some 30,000 people, to some degree or another, had taken a big knock from Cyclone Larry. I saw one of my primary tasks was to do what I could to restore their confidence to ensure that people knew and cared about their predicament and that governments were committed to helping. Equally, there had to be now an optimism that not only would they recover, but they would emerge bigger, brighter and better than ever. Of course, having talked the talk, I had to walk the walk. But the people of the disaster area fundamentally needed to understand that the rest of Australia had noticed their misery and their stoicism and their intense sense of community and their determination to arise from the sodden wreckage of their homes and that they would dig deep to help. 
I helped to describe the community ethos which quickly triumphed over incipient despair. It is this mobilisation of the unifying spirit which thrills us all, even as we mourn. Who can remember that very nice man Sir William Dean, then Governor-General of Australia, as he embraced the bereaved relatives of the youngsters killed in the Whitewater tragedy in Europe? Who can remember Paul Keating at the entombment of the unknown soldier in Canberra when in a great national moment he gave a magnificent speech encapsulating the values of the common man? Who can remember John Howard in Bali after the first bombing, consoling the devastated survivors and bereaved families of the Australian victims? Each of these modern moments was a window into the contemporary ethos of the nation. So my old soldier's advice to my corporate chief executive colleagues is not to see this matter of ethos or pride in the organisation as an adjunct program, a nice-to-have after nurturing the bottom line, but as a vital strategic investment. My final observation on contemporary leadership in Australia concerns communication, the art of conveying what is on your mind to those who follow you because they must, because it is convenient or because they are mildly interested. Communication is the conduit of leadership from the Prime Minister down to the leading hand of a small group of council workers fixing the roads. Leadership uncommunicated is leadership unrequited. Of course, most leaders appreciate that and do their very best to engage in a dialogue with their team. The real lessons in communication by leaders in Australia relate to its form and its effectiveness. One of the great advantages of the information age is the explosion in broadcast opportunities. Twitter, Facebook, SMS, telephone and video conferencing, all of these have exponentially increased our reach and our opportunity to communicate with others. The ubiquitous email has largely replaced the paper letter in the day-to-day -day passage of social information. It is seductive for leaders to consider the email, for example, as a prime conduit of information. A leader can sit in his or her office and craft thoughts, opinions and directives, and with the press of a button, send these around the office, around the nation, around the globe, while the ink would still be drying on a paper letter. Useful though that is, it is just one form of communication and certainly lacks that further level of connection between the leader and his team floating around in cyberspace seeking inspiration from a computer screen. Leadership messages must be direct, simple, fundamentally relevant to each member of the team hearing the message and desirably always part of a leadership refrain. Leaders, especially in the somewhat down-to-earth and cynical Australian environment, must resist being high-blown, demagogic and trapped in a vortex of management speak. Leaders are not received better by seeking to appear cleverer in their leadership messages. In concluding these remarks on leadership in Australia, I must say part of our national wealth is not only the people, 
but those people who lead them. Poking my head into the affairs and the social structures of many of our great friends and neighbours, I observe that we don't have a great deal to learn about how you enlist and mobilise Australians to do difficult things and produce wonderful results. Equally, there is no special Australian magic about leadership in this country, but simply some nuances which resonate well with a broad set of national characteristics with which we would all readily agree. We want our leaders to be fair dinkum, as much among us as above us. If we think that they are hugely conscious of the temporary privilege they have in being in charge, then we are likely to grudgingly acknowledge that they are not a bad sort of a man or woman, as under their stewardship we do marvellous things. Communication, it's the conduit of leadership, from the Prime Minister right down to the leading hand of a small group of council workers fixing the roads. Leadership uncommunicated is leadership unrequited. On ABC Radio National, that was General Peter Cosgrove delivering Leading in Australia, the third of this year's Boyer Lecture Series, which he's titled A Very Australian Conversation. And you can, of course, hear that lecture again. You can podcast it, read the transcript, or write some comments. Just head to our webpage at abc.net.au slash rn slash Boyer Lectures. Next week, it's the politics of ordinary Australians. We've had our fair share of pivotal political moments in this country, moments that have engaged the interest and the opinions of all of us. And yet through them all, our democracy and our institutions have stayed strong and we've remained peaceful. General Cosgrove reflects on those big moments in his lifetime and what their sum might come to mean for all of us. <laughs>